This morning, as, as we look at Acts chapter 16, I want you to be thinking about what does this have to do with our covenant responsibilities, our, our response to the gospel. We're going to look specifically at starting at verse 11. So if you've grabbed yourself a pew Bible, still feels kind of weird saying pew Bible, uh, it's on page 925. And we're going to be reading to chapter or verse 40. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and following the following day to Neapolis and from there Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that we are not law, that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everybody's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him 
and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up to his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and, and go in peace. And Paul said to them, we have been beat. They have beaten us publicly, condemned, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come down, come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. And they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison, visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is the word of the Lord. I would say that one of the most encouraging words, and I know that that sounds a little strong, but one of the most encouraging words comes from the Apostle Paul when he wrote the book to the church in Philippi. In uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul said this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I am sure of this, that God, who started something great in you, will see it to completion. And perhaps alongside this verse, one of the most frequently used verses in correspondence between believers is Philippians 1.3 that says, I thank, God, thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Man, I thank God for you. So when Paul penned these words, he was grateful for the great work that God had begun when he used Paul to plant the church in Philippi. He was certain that God had begun that work and that God would complete that work that he had begun. And he considered the evidence of God's grace in the lives of those those early church members and he found himself thanking God for them. And as we read the beginning of this great work in their lives, we find that God is up to something amazing in the early days of this church. This passage records the founding of the church in Philippi, a local church that seemed to be especially near and dear to the Apostle Paul. There were, sure, I'm sure, for sure, several reasons why it was near and dear to his heart, but one may be sure that this first church began in such a way that it opened the door for further evangelization of the entire Roman world. Another reason was, may have to do with the first three recorded converts in this city. And what may have seemed to be a great inauspicious start for what would become a church with a great missions heart. 
So this morning in our study, we're going to consider this passage with the view of rejoicing in God's great work, his great work of saving souls. And we got three separate accounts of God saving souls and the great work of God starting churches. A great work that he continues to do today. First, a little bit of context. If you remember, if you've been around for long enough, you would know that Paul, beginning his second missionary journey, he was prohibited by God to enter certain regions. He was told, listen, the door is closed to Asia Minor, to Bithynia for evangelisms, but that does not mean that the mission has come to an end. Paul, while he was in Troas, he had received a, a vision from God, a vision of a man from Macedonia pleading for for the team to come to them, to come with gospel help. And the missionaries, Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy, were persuaded that this vision was of God. So they set across, from the, uh, set across the Aegean Sea. It was a good two-day trip by sea in rough boats. They landed and took a good 10-mile hike to where they went to Philippi. They went to Philippi probably because it was considered, as our text says, a foremost city in that part of Macedonia. It was a well-known place. A.T. Robertson, a commentator, noted that Octavius made Philippi a colony with all the privileges of, a, of Roman citizenships, such as freedom from scourging, which is a good thing, right? Nobody needs to be scourged. Freedoms from arrest, save except extreme cases, and their right to appeal directly to the Roman emperor. Those are great privileges. So going to Philippi was certainly a strategic move on Paul's part. As it turned out, this city had a military colony. It was a miniature Rome. And in, and in the persons who there met the apostles, are mirrored the moral and spiritual needs of the ancient and modern-day world. Everything about Philippi is absolutely true for us today. There is much for us to learn about our evangelistic encouragement. So we see, we, we talked about God's great work in saving souls. Here, Luke names three converts in his record though there are clearly others who believed as well. First, we have Lydia. In verses 13 through 15, we find the record of the conversion, the, the life-changing activity that took place in Lydia. And as we've already seen in our, our study of Acts, Paul's usual strategy was to head directly to a local synagogue. Why did he do that? Because the people in the local synagogue had already known and been looking forward to the Messiah who was to come. So their hearts were ready. They were ripe for the picking. So in order to start his evangelistic work, he, he went searching outside the city walls for a synagogue, and there was none. You see, to have a, a synagogue, a Jewish synagogue, you had to have 10 faithful men to constitute a synagogue. And in that city, there were not 10 faithful Jewish men. So, rather than finding a synagogue, Paul found a riverside gathering of women. The meeting place prepared for God was a river, not a church building. 
And on the Sabbath day, Paul found a group of God-fearing women who were there to pray. Lydia obviously took some kind of form of leadership in this group. And she appears to have been what they call a proselyte at the gate. That is, while she feared the God of the Jews, she had not completely converted to the Jewish faith. She was still seeking, longing to find out about this God. And we don't want to miss the fact of this initial audience. Who was it? It was women. Fourneau, one of the commentators, notes this. The man of Macedonia, as earlier reported, turned out to be a group of women. While Paul often takes a lot of flack, and I mean a lot of flack for being something of a chauvinist, it's interesting that he, with Silas and Timothy and Luke, were quite comfortable evangelizing women. And through the spread of the gospel, the true gospel, Christianity did more and does more to abolish slavery and liberate women than any other movement in the world the language here used here that we sat down and spoke to the women suggests that each of the four missionaries had an opportunity to sit down by the riverside and share the good news of jesus christ and how he has impacted their lives with each of the women present but luke focuses focuses specifically on lydia who heard us the phrase means that she intently listened and reasoned about the things that she had heard. A little bit about Lydia. She was a seller of purple. For us today, it's like big deal. Seller of purple. Why is that a big deal? Well, it was a very valuable commodity. And the city Thyatira was famous for this. Thyatira, if you remember back, Thyatira was one of the places that they were not able to go to originally. And she was from Thyatira, and it was famous for the selling of purple goods. And probably because of the scarcity of the cloth and because of its great popularity, she was probably very wealthy, a very wealthy woman. And in the, in the providence of God, in God's great hand, her business led her to Philippi, where God was conducting his kingdom business. It's interesting to note that Thyatira was in Asia Minor, the place that was forbidden by, the, by God to share the gospel, but God was going to reach into there from Philippi. Grace has its ways. Grace has its ways. And graciously, God opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. Fortner says, he who is the heart's maker is the heart's master. He who is the heart's maker is the heart's master. And this highlights the reality of God's sovereign grace. And she needs the gospel as great, of grace as well as the grace of the gospel. And verse 15 shows us wonderfully that it did not, that not only did she believe, but so did her entire household. The entire household. And this is evident from the fact that the entire household was baptized. We don't know what her household looked like. The household may have been compromised. 
uh, comprised of a husband and children. It, maybe perhaps her whole household was filled with servants. We have no idea who was in that household, but the entire household was baptized. The point is, is that God saved her entire household. And we can see several indications of the saving faith of Lydia's life. First, the first thing that she did was she shared the gospel with those whom she was closest. Hear that. When the gospel impacted Lydia, her first response is to share the gospel with those whom she is closest with. And who was it? It was her household. I want, I want those words to sink into you deeply. Is How deeply has the gospel impacted me? And how deeply am I concerned about the welfare, the spiritual welfare of my family that I love? Am I willing to go to the ends of the earth to share the gospel with the family that is near and dear to me, my biological family, my spiritual family, my neighborhood family? Secondly, what did she do? She publicly and covenantally identified with Christ through baptism. The old man is now dead, being buried in Christ in the waters of baptism, and I am coming up alive in Christ. She identified with Christ. And she also served those who served her the gospel. She served those who served her with the gospel. She found herself connected to the community of faith and she immediately reached out in hospitality. Hospitality, by the way, is biblical evidence of salvation. When God opens a person's heart to Christ, they open their homes to Christians. As Barclay mentions, when Paul is describing the Christian character, he says that the Christians should be given to hospitality, Romans 12, 13. When, the, when Peter is urging the Christian duty upon his converts, he tells them, use hospitality to each other and never grudge it. Nathan, throw up this Barclay slide for me. I'll just say it out loud. Is it up there? A Christian home is a home with an ever-open door. Kind of breaks down the American way, doesn't it? Where we build fences and security systems. But the Christian home, a true Christian home, is a home with an ever-open door. Ever-open. Hospitality, as defined biblically, is not just opening up your your doors, your homes to your closest friends and your closest neighbors. It's not about having an amazing potluck with those closest and dearest friends. The word as used in scripture about hospitality literally means a lover of strangers. A lover of strangers. That kind of destroys our American concept of hospitality, doesn't it? I'm a lover of people that I love. That's kind of the American way. But biblically, hospitality is, I am a lover of strangers. Those who are far from Christ, those who are disconnected from Christ, I love them. Therefore, my home and our family is open. Our doors are ever open to display the gospel 
Our lives are on display. The second convert, moving quickly, is a lady with, and just let me get there first, a lady with a python spirit. A python spirit. You don't see it here, but in this passage we have a demon, account of a demon-possessed woman who was converted. And this happened as they were going to prayer, presumably that, uh, as in, in verse 13, they were, they, encount, they were on their way to the place of prayer, probably on the Sabbath day, but we're not for sure. And as they were doing so, they in, encountered a certain slave girl who was possessed with a spirit of divination. The phrase spirit of divination literally means a pythonic spirit. Snake spirit. She was possessed by a pythonic, big python spirit. One of the commentators explains the significance of this. The python was a mythical serpent and dragon that guarded the temple and oracle of Apollo. It was supposed to have lived at the foot of a mountain and eventually it was killed by Apollo. Later, the word python came to mean a demon-possessed person through whom the python spoke. Even a ventriloquist was thought to have such a spirit living in his or her belly. Undoubtedly, all who knew this girl regarded her as neither fraudulent nor insane, but as a demon-possessed and able to foretell the future. This young woman was not mentally ill. She was not insane. She was possessed by a demon. And like so many other women throughout history, she was abused by men who sought to profit through their evil behavior. She was a tool and a toy for their depravity. There are men today, still today, who are willing to acquire wealth by the degradation of women. Katie explained yesterday, and I'd encourage you to talk to her about her experience yesterday. There is a a living slave, sex trade slave, alive and well in Chicagoland. And it's often run by men. Prostitution rings led by men. I'll tell you when those rings are brought down, There's a lot of anger and bitterness. And this Pythonic woman followed around the missionaries, declaring them to be servants of the Most High God. And this sounds like great theology, right? But the term Most High God was used in the ancient world to describe or to speak of various false gods in distinction to the true Most High God. In fact, this term would have been completely acceptable by many Romans. Who said, yeah, oh, that sounds good. And of course, it was true that the missionaries were servants of the Most High God, as it is true that they proclaimed the way of salvation. So what this woman said was true, but for some reason, it greatly annoyed Paul. It ticked him off. And while she was saying the right thing, she was evidently saying it in the wrong way or with the wrong motives. Possibly she was saying it in a mocking way. She may have been trying to associate their message with the 
message of the occult that she was a part of. She could have been speaking in the same way that the demons sought to hinder Jesus' ministry when they publicly acknowledged him as the Son of God. Regardless, whatever the reasons, she became a nuisance to Paul and their mission. And Paul became indignant with this problematic woman. Indignant, he did something about it. He saved her. He didn't cast her off and say, get out of here. He saved her. And though this text doesn't specifically say that she was converted to Christ, the assumption is credible that she was. The Lord exercised her and then filled her with himself. This is a wonderfully great and a gracious work of God in the life of a sinful but abused woman. Hear this. The only hope for an evil world or a woman or a man filled with pain and abuse, the only hope is the gospel. That's the only hope. And God's grace poured out mightily in this woman's life, and the result was a great offense. Paul exercised the demon, and at the same time, he also exercised the wallets of the slave girl's masters. Offended. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Evidently, these enemies of the cross were strategic in how they acted. They seized Paul and Silas and not Timothy and Luke. If you remember, Timothy was a a Gentile and more than likely a Roman citizen. Luke also a Gentile and a Roman citizen. So strategically, these men seized the Jewish missionaries and played the race card. It was strategic. And before the authorities, they contrasted them as these being Jews with us being Romans. These Jews came into our city, a Gentile city, to stir up things. But not only did they play the race card, they also played the legal and political card. These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Roman law permitted a diversity of religion, much like our own country. As long as the outsiders did not proselytize or try to recruit Roman citizens to become other believers, or become a threat to the empire, or dishonor the emperor. So in a mob frenzy, the magistrates tore off their clothes, off the clothes of Paul and Silas. They beat them openly and imprisoned them, put their feet in stocks. And at this point, if I were them, I would wonder, is this really the Macedonian call? Was this really the great work that God had begun? Was this a mistake? Did we misread God's providence? Was this, are there really any hopes for planting a church in this situation, in this kind of town? It's little wonder that once a church was planted, that Paul was so hopeful and thankful for them. The scene now shifts to the third convert. In Philippians 4, verse 4, Paul wrote, wrote these words. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Kind of odd words, aren't they? If you think about it. The record before us tells us of real life illustrations of this exhortation. The joy expressed here by Paul and Silas was one that glowed in the dark. Glowed in the dark. This had had to be an absolute bizarre scene that night. I want you to imagine that you are in Cook County Prison in downtown Chicago. If you've never seen it, it's kind of this triangular building with strange looking walls down by the L. You're down there amongst a whole slew of all kinds of different prisoners. They have all kinds of different records and in for different kinds of crimes. The, these prisoners had seen here in Philippi, had seen a lot of different kinds of cellmates, but none quite like these two. None. These two, they had no doubt seen a lot of cursing. They had no doubt seen a lot of pro protest because I am innocent. No, you don't understand. I am innocent. They've heard it all. But the, their newest cellmates were praying and singing hymns to God. And this was no private devotional moment hiding off in a corner. Instead, the prisoners were listening to them. Throw this slide up for me, Nathan. The gospel does such a great work that we can find reason to sing in the darkest circumstances. Is our gospel conviction merely theoretical? Hear that. Paul and Silas were in prison. They just got beaten severely, clothes ripped off them, publicly beaten, thrown into stocks, thrown into the, the inner prison. So it's... It's like maximum security. And what were they doing? They were singing and praising God in their darkest moment. In my darkest moment, I am crying and weeping and I'm looking for a way out. Instead, they were singing and praising. This gives us a picture that the gospel does such a great work in our lives that it does what? It gives us a reason to even sing in the darkest of circumstances. So the question for you this morning, is the gospel, your gospel conviction, merely a theoretical academic thing up here? Okay, I believe that Jesus Christ died. He did this. He did this. It's theoretical. It's up here. Do you believe that? Or is it a life-altering, a life-shaping event and fact that continues to impact your life and the lives around you? This past week, Todd wrote a, a blog post. And I don't know how many of you actually read our blog posts that we put out there. Look for them under the resource section on our website. Read them. This one, he... He pulled a quote from Matt Boswell from a book called Doxology and Theology. Listen to this quote. Throw it up there for me, Nathan. We should never boldly proclaim into a microphone that which we wouldn't have the courage to share with our neighbor. 
often when we are gathered as a church in a safe place, we proclaim the greatness of God and the sufficiency of the gospel, right? When we're here together, there's no shame because I can look at Bob and say, Bob's a Christian. Kathy's a Christian. We can sing of God's greatness. We can tell each other what God has done. Next slide, Nathan. However, when we leave that safety, we are too often either apathetic or filled with unbelief in the things we profess to be true. Are our gospel convictions merely theoretical or do you believe them deeply that in your darkest moments you sing praise before the eyes of men and women who don't believe Paul and Silas sang praises to God and as they did that God miraculously provided a way of deliverance Previously in Acts chapter 5, God miraculously freed the imprisoned apostles and he did so again in Acts chapter 12. However, this time, while a way of escape was provided, neither Paul nor Barnabas took advantage of this opportunity to escape. They stayed put. And in fact, so startling was this entire event that even other prisoners stayed rooted in the spot. Nobody moved. The fact that this was clearly from God may have so sobered the criminals from making an illegitimate escape. They stayed rooted. They could not believe this good news of Jesus Christ. And I need to hear more. I am more captivated by the good news and the freedom found in Jesus than I am enthralled with the opportunity to escape. According to Roman law, any jailer who failed to guard the prisoners under his trust is liable for the same punishment prescribed for them. And presuming that many of the prisoners had escaped, this guard decided that he was going to save the authorities some time. And he was going to take his own life, assuring them My life, I failed my job. But Paul called out quickly and said, Stop! Don't do this! Assured, he assured him that none of the prisoners had escaped. Maybe the jailer had heard about this, the deliverance of Lydia. Maybe the jailer had heard about this woman with the Pythonic spirit who had been freed from the power and the bondage of that sin. Maybe he had heard about what had happened. Regardless, he immediately went to Paul and Silas and cried out, what? What must I do to be saved? What must I do? Did he think that he deserved the judgment from the mighty God who sent earthquakes and released the chains? Whatever was on his mind, salvation at this moment was right front and foremost. And he asked the most important question, and we will have another sermon on this question. Most important question that anyone could ever ask, what must I do to be saved? And the missionaries, no doubt in chorus, responded and gave him an absolutely simple question. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on him and you will be saved. 
and adding his household to the equation showed the missionaries believe that God even saves households. Evidently, this, this missionary or these jail, this jailer brought the missionaries to his home or perhaps his family gathered at the prison. We don't know. But the missionaries preached the gospel to all of them. And evidently, all of them believed on the Lord Jesus and were saved and baptized. This record, by, way, by the way, highlights the importance of the heads of the home. Hear that, men. This emphasizes the importance of the head of the household. God delights to save households. Delights. And it's up to the house of house head of the house to expose his family to the gospel preaching as much as possible. As with Lydia, we see evidence of salvation of the jailer. First, he served those who served him with the gospel. Then he got baptized, openly identifying with the one with whom he had just seen beaten and imprisoned. He, he counted the cost and he confessed. And then he identified with other converts. No sooner than he turned to Christ than he washed the welts upon the prisoners' backs and set a meal before them. His Christianity issued there and then in the most practical act of kindness. Unless a man's Christianity makes him kind, it is not Christianity at all. Lastly, what did he do? He rejoiced in the Lord. There's no doubt that this man would pay a big price to follow the Lord, but he had his biggest problem sorted out. He is now saved. This is all good news. God works in miraculous kinds of ways. A church was planted, established, put into place. So just two points of application to close it up. First, it should be noted that Philippians 1 verse 6 is a corporate promise. That he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. It is a corporate promise and we should be encouraged that God who begins is the God who completes. And the reality is the most unlikely beginnings can most often yield the most encouraging results. The most unlikely strange beginnings can have the most encouraging, powerful results. So part of this call is to persevere. Knowing that, like with the baptism of Evelyn, that God is a God who is a promise-keeping God. He desires to keep his promises and he always does. Always. So he who began a good work in you, in us, will be faithful to complete it. So persevere. And lastly, we need to note that God will continue to open hearts to those whom he has chosen to save. 
God will do it. And he will do whatever is necessary to do it. Even if there is no synagogue or church in the, the whole city, God will find those who are seeking and he will send people to them to share the gospel. God will find those who are most spiritually, physically, mentally, sexually abused. And God will enter their life, exercise that pain, and fill them with his grace and his joy. And God will use them. God will enter into prisons where people are in total bondage and he will save an entire household. Part of me wishes that Luke, the, the author of Acts, would have shared the rest of the story because there were other prisoners in those prisons who were listening intently. Canons of Dort, one of uh, the Reformed Church's kind of background, historical documents that help us understand Scripture, tells us this. Nathan, you can throw it up there. The promise of the gospel is that whoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish, but have eternal life. Amen to that? That's the promise of the gospel. Anybody who believes in Jesus Christ crucified... There lies the, the good news that we will not perish but have eternal life. But then it goes on to the next slide, Nathan. This promise together with the command to repent and to believe ought to be declared and published to all the nations and to all pe persons. What does the word say? Permiscuously. This promise ought to be declared to everyone promiscuously shared all over the place we we often look at that word and go huh, promiscuous think about it in the context of the gospel it is to be shared promiscuously it is to be spread from one person to the next person with passion and without distinction to whom god out of his good pleasure sends the gospel we are to share the gospel and the promises of the gospel promiscuously. The marvels of God's grace is that it will not take no for an answer from some men. Grace is not something that God simply offers to, to sinners. It is something that God performs in them. Grace is something that God performs in you. Be encouraged that God's great work on our part, in our part of the world, may have just begun. Unlikely beginnings. He who started something within us will be faithful to complete it. My prayer is that we will continue to grow in, in Christ so that as people move away from our church and go to other parts of the country or maybe even to other churches, that they will be able to say, oh, man, I thank my God every time I remember these people. Man, I miss you day, church. These people, man, even though we're, we're transplanted to another part of the country or we're worshiping in another church, man, every time I think about them, I thank God for them.
For after all, it remains true that God not only began a good work here, but he will continue to see that great work to completion. Let us, like the church at Philippi, may we be encouraged. Sharing the gospel promiscuously. For it's the promise of eternal life. Let's pray.